Dotnet Rocks episode 871 with guests Mark Mercury and Mark Sims. Recorded live Wednesday, May 8th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklin's.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. And uh, man, this is going to be a good show. How are you doing, my friend? I'm excited. I'm, you know, it's it's the crazy spring conference season. Uh, odds are when this was published, I'm on the chunk of travel that it covers five weeks, including some time in Romania. You and I are together in DevTeach in Toronto. And then we're together again in New Orleans for TechEd. Can't and wait. then we're together again in uh, Oslo, Norway for NDC. And it's just a... Accidents waiting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Much scotch will be consumed. Yeah. It's gonna uh, be I'm, fun. Already, I'm already having folks uh, poking at me from Ordev saying, uh, can we plan a scotch tasting in at the Green Lion? Oh, that's awesome. That'll be fun because the Green Lion's got a really exceptional collection of scotch. So I've had a great time arguing with their experienced bartenders over, you know, six different scotches to taste in progression of flavor profiles. Right. Uh, which we did. We do every year. We didn't do last year because we were on the road trip. All right, well, let's get started with Better Know Framework. All right. So what do you got? I got a headache from that music. That's what I got. <laughs> People love that music, I man. That's crazy, though. You should try playing an instrument sometime. I uh, should. You should. Hey, uh, do you remember we talked to uh, Evan Hawk at CodeMash last year? Yeah. All right, well, guess what's out on CodePlex? What? Codify.net. Wednesday, May 8th, 2013. That's today at 3 a.m. this morning. So was, Evan published. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Cudify, that's C-U-D-A-F-Y dot codeplex dot com, allows easy development of high-performance GP, GPU applications completely from the Microsoft.net framework developed in C-sharp. So write code on the GPU, not just AMP, not just C++ here. We're talking C-sharp, VBNet, whatever you do on the GPU. That is pretty cool. And if you go back and listen to show number 840, the one called Stories from Code Bash, you can hear us talking to Evan about exactly that. And uh, it's great to see it finally published. Congratulations, Evan. And uh, we need to check this out because this is amazing. We all have GPUs now, and you can take advantage of them to make your apps go faster. Stinky fast. Stinky fast. 100 times or more speed up. Very cool. In some large data set operations like matrices. That's what they say on the page anyway. No one learn it. Love it. Cutify.net. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 866, speaking of conferences, because this was the state of cloud panel discussion we had at Dev Intersection in Las Vegas in the spring. Right. With Michelle and Yuval, Brady and Zoiner. It was good fun. Uh, and this is a comment from uh, Joshua Bylotus who says, guys, I just want to compliment you again on a great show. I love the cloud discussions, but there were some facts that were a bit confusing. I have been working on putting medical records online, and based on the information I have gotten from our regulatory compliance department, it is okay with Azure. Azure is currently the only hosting provider that will sign a BAA. I'm not exactly sure what a BAA is. He doesn't explain it here, but he goes on to Bad say... Badass architect. I have been in talks with AWS, that's Azure Web Services, yeah. and others, and they currently have no position. The idea behind the BAA is in the U.S. there was a change to the HIPAA and high-tech laws stating that the provider of the infrastructure must sign a document ensuring the infrastructure is secure. Right. Azure will sign the document if you have an enterprise license agreement through Azure. This is huge. Many in the medical field cannot go to platform as a service due to the regulatory requirements, and this makes infrastructure as a service the perfect alternative. We control the infrastructure and the patching and can do so in accordance with local laws. While I see the usefulness of the platform as a service model, I also use this for normal commercial businesses I work with. In a regulated field, it is currently not an option. Uh, again, terrific show, and I would love to hear more about security on the cloud as it's a big issue for me. 
Uh, Josh, it's, that's cool information. I did not know that Azure has gone and, and actually gotten involved with uh, being able to do medical stuff. That's really cool. Yep. And it sort of speaks to where we are legally. Uh, I got to imagine at some point the platform as a service could be under that license as well, because I think the big thing that came out of that panel discussion is you want platform as a service. It gives you a much higher value for your dollar than infrastructure as a service. That infrastructure as a service is sort of the lesser choice if you have to do this. So hopefully they can uh, raise the bar even higher around compliance. Well, so yeah. uh, thanks so much for your insight. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on our mobile apps for iPhone, Android, and Windows Phone. They all go to the same Discus common engine, and you can uh, participate both on your phone and on the website. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything on the Microsoft stack, including a whole bunch of courses on Windows Azure. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. And now it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the show Mark Mercury and his friend Mark Sims. Mark Mercury is currently a senior director in Microsoft Services Applied Incubation Team. Mark leads a team that engages with high-profile customers on their strategic, high-scale, public, and hybrid cloud projects with a focus on strategy and architecture. Internally, he's one of the leads of the Failsafe Initiative, that provides guidance on resiliency and scalability for cloud services and is currently focused on a number of devices plus services projects, ranging from connected appliances to connected cars to instrumented industrial devices. Mark Sims is a principal program manager on the Windows Azure customer advisory team, helping customers build out the largest services and applications on Azure. He's currently focused on scalability and availability patterns for building internet scale services. Prior to joining Microsoft, Mark was the CTO of a mobile app startup, working on everything from embedded digital design to live site operations for a SaaS platform, software as a service, SASE. Welcome, Mark and Mark. Hey, guys. Uh, let's start with Mark. <laughs> uh, Mark Mercury, say hello so we can recognize your voice. Hey, thanks, uh, Carl and Richard. Well, it's good to have you back. Uh, last time, I think we were talking about NASA or something. I can't remember exactly, but Mark Sims, welcome. Hey, everyone. So what are you guys up to here? Azure Failsafe. It, uh, it's weird because at once you're like, oh, yes, Failsafe. Oh, does that mean Azure is failure prone? What does that mean exactly? No, 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 no not at all. So it's, it's one of those things that... Um if you think about the cloud, we now have democratized access. So you have access to this great power and a great number of machines. And if you think about historically, you know, there was some friction in terms of having to acquire those machines and people yep. who own them. So if you wanted to get access to write out these distributed apps at scale, there was typically some checks or some friction in place ahead of time to allow you to get access to them. Well, as they say in the comic books, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And we're finding that on just about every platform, um, you're finding that uh, just because you have access to the cloud doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be uh, resilient. You can look at the the, the uh, Christmas Eve issue that they had last year as a great example, right? So mm-hmm. um, I was watching It's a Wonderful Life with, with my family on uh, Netflix, and it went down. And for uh, Amazon Streaming Media, it didn't go down. And they were built on the same platform, mm-hmm. the same cloud provider, mm-hmm. but one made a different architectural decision than the other, and, and one went down. So Failsafe is really about providing you that that guidance to help you build out distributed systems at scale that are resilient. I, I think they uh, just released the code monkey during It's a Wonderful Life, because what would be more cha- or chaos monkey, rather? What would be more chaotic than that? Yeah, so I get it. So it's not about, you know, uh, the failure of the of the platform as much as is the failure of, of your apps. Is that fair to say? Well, it's a little different than that. So over the last 10 or 15 years, we've all gotten pretty good at building, quote-unquote, stateless applications. Yep. which is just another way of saying writing system code is hard, writing state management is hard, so I'm going to make it somebody else's problem. Mm. The traditional place to do that is I'm going to jam everything into a big relational engine, SQL, Oracle, pick your, uh, pick your poison, mm. which is great, 
up until you exceed the limit of what you can put on a single box. And then things start to get exponentially complicated and exponentially expensive. But we still have this separation of system code on top of a platform, and then relatively stateless, if it breaks, no big deal, code that people are writing. Mm. The interesting thing that happens to the cloud is you no longer have what I call the titanium eggshell approach. You're now, instead of saying, all right, I'm going to have my stateless code here and I'm going to make all the hard stuff someone else's problem, you now have applications that are composed of a collection of services, some of which you don't even control. And if I want email, I'm going to fire off a connection to SendGrid. If I want to know what's going on on social media, I'll fire off a connection to Twitter. And as a part of this whole cloud thing, as I give up, as I give up control, there are more moving parts and there are more unusual and inter- interesting things that can happen. More points of failure. Uh, exponentially more. And some of them you don't, you can't even go and ask the system if it's failed. You actually have to know what your dependencies and what those external services are doing. Right. It means that you as the architect, as the developer, as the implementer, in return for all this neat elasticity and not being kind of shackled down to the capital asset ordering process, you got to do a few other things. Yeah. It's kind of like, have you ever seen Star Wars, the, the character Yoda says, you have to unlearn all that you have learned, yeah. right? Sure. So scaling up is something you don't want to do. Scaling out is what you want to take a look at. So you guys and meantime invest- between failure is, is bad, but meantime to restore is good. So really embracing failure. So you have to really start rethinking some things. So what you guys have done is put together a set of guidance, a, a set of uh, uh, how-tos and do's and don'ts for, um, for making your apps as fail-safe as possible. We started with the white paper, and then uh, we delivered an internal training a couple of months ago that we video recorded. And we edit those up, and we made those videos available on Channel 9. So it's a good 10 hours worth of content, both in the, um, here are the things you want to think about regardless of which platform that uh, you deploy to, whether it's, say, private cloud or, or using Windows Azure. And then uh, we've got some great implementation guidance for Windows Azure as well. So you think we can blow through all this stuff in, uh, in an hour? Do we get the shortened version of it? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not the answer you're looking for, but oh, sure. Uh, well, if, we, we could cover the, the the most pressing and important things. I think, maybe, I hope. We can at least throw out teasers for all of them. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I, I think that's good. I think, and the other thing we'd we'd want to leave folks with is that you know, it's like oh, well, so I need to watch some videos for maybe five hours or things like that, or I might have to invest a couple hours reading a, a white paper, and maybe I have to write some more code. But we can tell you firsthand. So the teams that Mark and I are on. Um, ideally get brought in up front, but invariably get brought in when things have gone horribly wrong. Yeah, right. And, and we see these things where if you had spent two days up front, the three months you're going to have to spend intensively um, from here going forward are, mm-hmm. are things you could have avoided. Yep. I think it's probably a key thing to mention is um, pretty, pretty much all the fail-safe training, all the guidance, all the documentation, all the samples out there. We could have sat down in, our, in a little library tower and used about what a perfect world would look like. Uh, unfortunately, most of, or fortunately for folks, most of what we've got there, or actually all of what we got there, is the result of pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. It is uh, mistakes, both ours and others, uh, experienced at scale that we're hoping to uh, box up and prevent other folks from having the same uh, highly tangible learning experiences that our teams have gone through in the last year and a half. And it strikes me, just in the first few things you said here, and certainly my experience has been when you get systems big, it doesn't matter whether cloud or not, it's about seamless failure, not never failing. Just that exactly. you've got to be able to fail and nothing breaks. And the thing, and actually, most folks are already used to that anyway, but it's always been the responsibility of IT or the hardware. We expect hard drives to fail all the time. That's right. why we have great. We expect network cards to fail all the time or power supplies. We expect these things. We bake them into the hardware. As we get into kind of a more abstract distributed model in the cloud, we kind of take those responsibilities and we move up one layer. If you have 100,000 machines that you're running against, one of them is always failing. It's just physics. So if only one of them is failing, it's a miracle. That's right. I didn't put a time window on that. (laughs) (laughs) Only one is failing a second. Okay. Not that. So, so it's, it all starts in the planning stages, as you say, you know, and decomposition seems to be, the, the buzzword here, you know, we we want to distribute the workload, but how do we know, you know, how how busy things are going to get? I mean, uh, that's one thing I'm always concerned about is, well, we know we can scale out and scale up when things get hot, but what are the, the main areas of decomposition when we're talking about a an Azure app or any cloud app for that matter? 
So, I mean, I guess there's a couple of things. It really, we well, can talk about the specifics, but I think in general, you're hitting the, the key point up front is you want to decompose by workload, and then you want to do some, some modeling. Yeah, so when I think about this question, I really think about three things. I think about scalability, availability, manageability. And they're all kind of three sides of the triangle. If you don't have all of them, uh, you're probably hosed. I'm exposing my Canadian background here by using that term. Oh, take nice. off. Yeah. So in terms of, uh, in terms of scalability, so when we thought about scale, it's really been about how much, how much big iron can we buy and how efficient can we make our code? The first one is not really in, in the um, equation anymore. It's part of going to cloud is being able to amortize across a bunch of little machines. The second one is really interesting because having code run more efficiently isn't a question of scalability. It's actually a question of density, which for a given amount of resources, say one box, one network, one whatever, how much actual work can I put through? You know, better algorithms, more optimized network packets, less in the wire, all that good stuff. And that's that's useful in cloud, but in a cloud world, that's more a matter of what does my bill look like rather than what does my scalability look mm. like? Because scalability in the cloud is can I, where's the point at which I cannot throw more resources at a problem in a scale out fashion? Mm-hmm. As opposed to how efficiently can I use any one of those? Your actual scale is the kind of the combination of both. Uh, a simple example of how many um, instances can I put behind a load balancer before I run out of TCP ports? It's a pretty big number, but I work on a number of systems where that sort of thing can and does happen. How many connections can I sustain to a database? How many operations can I put through? How many databases can I throw at a problem before I spend too much time bouncing back and forth rather than doing useful work? That's really kind of the, the crux of scalability is what, what are my scale units, both in terms of compute, storage, data, network, all that good stuff, and how many can I um, corral or orchestrate to throw at a problem? Availability is really one of the, is one of the really interesting ones in that this is a highly distributed system built out of a lot of uh, commodity components, including other services I don't control. Uh, I can have somewhat variable uh, latency, somewhat variable throughput as we're sharing resources. But actually, the thing that's most different is not in terms of the architecture that we're building it for, but really the types of applications. If I'm building uh, a CRM system for a company, and I have 1,000 employees one day and 1,100 the next. We just went on a hiring spree. If I'm building an Internet-facing site and I have 1,000 users one day and a million users the next, that's a great day. I know I have a different <laughs> But this is not at all unknown. Just the sheer unpredictability of load really puts a lot of strain both on scalability but more important on availability. What happens when you become wildly successful and a million people show up and want in through your front door? you better be able to bang out a few more doors or take out a wall pretty quickly. Well, I remember there was that great IBM commercials years ago where they, you know, it's exactly that. Every, everything hits at once, so they just say, lock the door. <laughs> uh, actually, not always the worst thing to do as long as you put a sign up. Right, yeah. Well, yeah, you, you know, you're exactly right. It, it would be nice that, that you could just dial a knob and make the site go faster and all million users can get served. But availability is more important. That if, any, if at least some are being served. I'm just trying to, there was an example of this, I think, was it when Colorado was in the World Series and they opened up the tickets and basically crashed the site. And so they delayed a day and they throttled the site so that only a few people could get through at a time, but those people could actually buy tickets. And the folks that were being throttled were being told, hey, we're busy, come back later. Yeah. As opposed to getting the spinning wheel of death or some awkward error message. Yeah, so they, so, they were frustrated because they weren't getting their tickets, but they knew what was happening. And they touched on one of the key points, which is around graceful degradation of service. Bad things will happen, both right. in terms of unpredictable user activity, in terms of uh, you know not being able to cope with a particular load event, or you might say, I've got an operational bill of you know, fifty or a hundred thousand dollars for this site in a given month. If I get too much load, I'm just going to shut the door and stop serving people. But having the right architecture and the right implementation to make that a business decision, not the only decision. Right. You kind of you sort of doing stuff consciously. I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. So one thing to think about too is you know, Mark talked about uh, scalability and, and manageability, and think about that not necessarily for the entire app, which you definitely want to do, but also understand what you want to do when you decompose by workload. There are certain Aspects of that, they're going to have different uh, requirements in terms of what is it that we want to scale? What is it that we need to guarantee? And what is it that we can fail over? What are we going to rev? And what technologies do we want to use? So I'll give you a, a real-world example. You have a company that wants to do a sports API, right? So they're going to deliver sports scores 
um, out to folks. And this also will play into a concept of modeling that's going to help you pick the, the right technologies, and, and, and we can drill a little bit deeper into that. So you think about sports, and, and I'm going to deliver an API. Well, there's historical stats, things that have happened previously they are going to tell you about the players, and then there's going to be the, what's happening in real time during the game. Well, guess what? If you model out when people actually use these services, you can say, well, guess what? The stats people use during the week, but they don't really use during the game. And if someone can't get access to them for a certain period of time, that probably isn't the end of the world. But on match day, if I can't get my live scores, and then I hear on the radio that someone scored and, and uh, or someone tells me that and I didn't understand what was going on, I'm going to be pretty annoyed, right? Yeah. Um, so those would be two different workloads you could look at. So there's historical stats delivery and there's real-time stats delivery. And you could look at from an availability perspective, one needs to be more available, one needs to have more um, capacity allocated to it. Um, we'll may take different resiliency mechanisms for the stuff that's during match day. And the, the other thing to take a look at is that we're delivering this and we really understand the life cycle of what's going on. So we all talk about elasticity in the cloud, but yep. I can tell you firsthand, most people don't do that, right? No. Elasticity goes up and it never goes down. Yeah, I, actually... I, I've seen over and over again with all this discussion about automated elasticity, what they really do is go, well, we're going to get bombed today on Saturday and just lit up a whole bunch of instances. Mm-hmm. And that's fine, but a lot of people don't turn it down on Sunday. Right. right. Um, we're finding that they just sort of leave it running. Um, and you can do, you know, predictable analysis of what you're going to need. And then there's concepts like scale units. You could figure out how many scale units might I need and how do I scale up and those sorts of things. But just the basic modeling of what, when do I think this is going to be used is, is important, right? I mean, if you've got a car, cars have a model. There's drive time in the morning and drive times in the afternoon. If you're in Wall Street after was it at four o'clock or four thirty when the markets are closing, you have a certain amount of time that you have to go ahead and allocate things and get it into the system. Otherwise, you have to pay a fine. But if you don't build that into your plan, then you're missing out on a number of different things. Whether it's maybe it fails because we didn't build it resilient enough, or maybe it's not fast enough, or maybe we're not handling the load as as we know we should be during this time. And I should bring up a really interesting point in terms of that uh, automated elastic scale. My background is actually industrial control systems, which turns out to be very applicable to the types of problems that we're dealing with in terms of hmm. the cloud. Think of it, it's basically like the, like the thermostat in your house. It's all set up that you give it a set point, and it'll work all of its magic with, you know, to either add fuel, add heat, remove heat, all that good stuff. And that's an important part of any cloud infrastructure, the ability to say, I want these many resources, reallocate, reshift. But the part that sometimes gets lost is who decides what the temperature is supposed to be. Right. And that can get really interesting, especially because if you have unpredictable load and you have you have momentum in the system, it takes time to move data. It takes time to activate instances. It's not instantaneous. Electrons have mass. It's an unfortunate physical problem we've been dealing with for some time. So a lot of the uh, kind of the of the auto scale, a lot of people don't trust them for good reason because they can get unbalanced. They can start doing crazy things. Uh, we have a actually just acquired a great uh, little startup called Metrics Hub, now available on the Azure Store, that actually has some really interesting algorithms, both for doing this uh, this automated feedback, as well as saying, hey, I know I've got a big thing coming up on Tuesday, spin up a bunch of stuff in advance. But the thing I like most about that particular capability is it has a what-if graph, meaning it can go and it can look at your your site history, your kind of your telemetry and your instrumentation, and go, here's how we would have adjusted your uh, deployed size, your instances, your capacity, based on what you want and what you needed, and it helps to kind of build confidence that hey, I can turn I can turn on Skynet and let it control my fate and see what happens. Well, because the problem is, it's very hard to simulate any of those tests, right? Like you have to pretty. I, I like the idea of just having it watch and say what it would have done while you're doing what you would do. There's no data like real data, right? And so, especially because if you're just kind of starting off with a new service, the anybody who says they can predict load is probably selling something. Not that we're not, by the way, but uh, <laughs> it's just because people are people and they do crazy things. Yeah. Well, I've, I've used that line in my load testing conversations that no load tester is as weird as a human. That's right. You just yep. They're going to do stuff you did not think of. They're going to sit and hit refresh nine times. On four windows. On four windows. <laughs> and tweet all their friends to do the same thing. Right. While wildly pressing control, delete. <laughs> well, that one tends to be a self-correcting problem. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it's... Yeah, I. Every time we talk about elasticity, it's like, what do you measure? What does your site look like when it's under load? 
And how, and this really comes back into core control systems, and I could go off and all kinds of math and put everyone to sleep, so I won't do that. But just a simple one, like, how often am I checking the depth of a queue or my CPU load? If I'm only checking it every five minutes and I'm making very quick reactions based on that, they're probably wrong. Yeah. Even simple stuff like uh, CPU, the most common one everyone looks at to figure out if they're going to scale. It's also almost always completely wrong. I'm going to correct you there, Mark, with a K. The most commonly looked metric on a server is the server hard drive light. Ah, but since it's virtual here, you're back yeah. to psychic debugging. I'm lo- yeah, I keep telling folks, you know, staring at that, how fast that light is blinking is not going to tell you how much load it's under. Right. But I'm with you. The next one is CPU purely because that's the one that Perfmon adds automatically. I have, uh, so I've proposed a new service in Azure, but this hasn't gotten uh, any traction at all. I've proposed putting webcams on the storage arrays. <laughs> I love it. Just watch the blinky lights. Smoke detectors. It just didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the level of heat, the temperature, you know, the thermometer. That's a remote thermometer. That would be fun, especially if you get the conversion wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right in that we've been conditioned to think of CPU as an important metric, but most web apps are I.O. bound, not yeah. CPU bound. Um, what is your favorite metric? Uh, the depth of the IIS application queue. Yeah. For me, it's queued, re- queued requests because the correct number of queued requests is zero. Minus one if you can get there. If you can get there. Yeah. If you're actually uh, serving requests before they arrive, that would be even better. Yeah. And getting a representing a negative number with an unsigned integer is challenging. But hey. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess that the problem is that just because that queue is building doesn't mean you know what the problem is. No, it could be anything. Uh, so I was working on a, uh, so this is actually, this is where, where this interesting juxtaposition of scalability, availability, and manageability comes in. Because we're like, what, 20 minutes in, I haven't told a story yet. Time to tell right. a story. So I was working with a large um, kind of social network company about six or eight months ago. We were over visiting them, talking about kind of a, a next generation, kind of doing some stuff with the storage architecture. And they had an outage event. Of course, this is very bad. Um, what had happened was, all of a sudden, latency spiked through the roof, and because IIS is a constrained concurrency queue dispatcher, meaning that you get a certain number of lanes, just like the grocery store, and if one of them fills up, then very quickly they will all fill up with the metaphysical equivalent of someone paying in pennies. I'm sure we've all seen it. And all of a sudden, latency went through the roof, requests were taking four and five minutes to complete. I don't know about you guys, but four or five seconds is an eternity for a web page to load. Yep. People were going away. So the site was yep. technically up because it was serving requests, but it was so far out of SLA, it was just, there was no good user experience. And at the time, this has since been fixed, there weren't any really good logs about what the system was doing. All we had were the IIS logs. So we were in a psychic debugging mode. It had turned out that one oh, of the- Oh, wait a second. Psychic I debugging love mode. that. <laughs> Yes. I think I need a helmet with a couple of Wi-Fi antennas on it. I'll call it my psychic debugging helmet. <laughs> what would Silicon do? <laughs> we almost broke out the tinfoil hats, but we had to, we had to hold off. People would have looked at us more funny. <laughs> what? So, so that's what you were doing. You were staring at that hard drive light, right? You're actually trying to get messages from the machine. Right. It's a blinking in Morse code. You just have to watch very carefully. <laughs> it turned out what had happened is one of the dependent services used by this site that was hosted by a third party had had an outage. The proxy that was being used, the web service proxy that was being used to call out, wasn't honoring its timeout value. So it would, you would get a request to say, hey, get this piece of information from a third party service, which was happening one half of 1% of all requests. This was taking four and five minutes, and you had the person paying in pennies. Ouch. It choked up all the dispatch lines and then proceeded to ripple in a, what we like to call a cascading systemic failure across 120 instances in less than three minutes. Ouch. Yeah, ouch. And and all comes down to that one piece didn't fail fast enough. Yeah, exactly. That, so it actually was a combination of that piece didn't fail properly, and the code was written such that it trusted the downstream service. It trusted its dependency and didn't bound the call. It was also written synchronously, which compounded the issue. The, the same thing would have still have happened with purely asynchronous. It would have just happened like 11 minutes later. 
I mean, one of the things that you sort of touched on here is that if you think about your house, you've got a circuit breaker that will flip when things go awry and there are certain conditions that are set to make that happen. You should be writing that into your code as well. So don't trust the downstream services. Understand the conditions on what you should do and then react as appropriate. So if you call uh, a service that's not available 100% of the time, and very few are, and I don't know that if any are that I trust, um, guess what? If you can't get through, then that may be perfectly fine, and you may want to retry. And then you retry a couple more times, and that doesn't work. Well, guess what? After five times, maybe you don't want to do that anymore. You want to degrade gracefully. Maybe you handle things in a different way. Maybe you write, if you're collecting credit card information, you write it to a table storage if you can't get to SQL Server or, or something along those lines. And then understand what you can flip back the circuit breaker and, and uh, have processes that will handle that on the other side. But a lot of people don't do that. It's sort of, we trust these things and they also don't understand, don't even know what the SLAs are, the services they're using half the time, um, which is a whole other ball of wax. So here's a fun one. I, and I'm sure that everyone who ever hears this will have seen this. We've seen a web page that basically throws up a really ugly error saying, yeah, I couldn't connect to the database. You guys have seen that, right? Yeah. That he can't connect to the database? Yeah, just this, just this error message, couldn't connect the database for whatever right. reason. So there's something really fascinating about that. It says that we have an entire generation of programmers that has been taught through experience that databases never fail. Right, yeah. That the thought that this relational engine might not be available under any circumstance is so unthinkable there wasn't a single error handler ever built in for it. On one hand, that's amazing because we did such a good job as an industry of building these, you know, these really rock-solid engines. And now we go to the cloud and we kind of yank out that that rug because we no longer have the titanium eggshell to lean on. Right. Yeah. I was say, you also need to know that the services you depend on may depend on other services. So right. if there is a service your service takes a dependency on and that fails, if they haven't done this, then your service will get a failure and then you need to make sure you can handle that. So it's, it's really being aware of your surroundings uh, and, and being able to react to them. You know, the, the retry is a lost art, I think. And it's one that we should all Get ready to embrace. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to employ Azure fail-safe guidance for my liver. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm wearing that, 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 that uh, foil helmet. I'm trying to figure out what your liver's saying to me. That's right. Now it's time to announce the winner of a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. What a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club is going to win that. But first, I need to tell you about uh, Telerik's cloud support. They were one of the first vendors to provide support for Windows Azure back in early 2009 when the cloud platform was first released as Cloud Trust Protocol. Telerik now offers everything needed to help .NET developers build quality web, desktop, and Windows phone applications for the cloud quickly and easily out of the box. Check out Telerik.com slash Azure and take the shortcut to Windows Azure development. So who's our winner? So today's winner is Bruce Cantellis from Lake Mary, Florida. Congratulations, Bruce. And Richard, we have another thing to give away, which is a ticket to DevTeach in Toronto. Go to devteach.com to learn all about that. When's that happening, Richard? DevTeach is in actually Mississauga, although that's a suburb of Toronto, just so people don't get confused. Right. It's actually closer to the airport that way. It's not so, in Vancouver, by the way. Uh, yeah, don't go to Vancouver. No. I don't know who would do that. Who would that? do that? But don't go, yeah, go to Fly to Toronto. It's actually Mississauga. It's May 27th to 31st, and it is uh, focused on web, Visual Studio. There's some SQL content. It's a great show. We've done it. This is its 10th anniversary. I can't believe JR has been doing this show this long. Yeah. So uh, come on out. We'll be there. We'll be doing a panel discussion in a pub on the Wednesday night. It's going to be fantastic. And also the uh, Humanitarian Toolbox Hackathon will be going on there on Thursday night. And our winner of that ticket today is Lance Elworth. Uh, congratulations, Lance. Congratulations, Lance. We'll see you there. We hope. Hope you can make it. Hope you make it. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. And every year, we give away $5,000 worth of technology. Last year's winner in 2012 was a fellow by the name of Rob Corbett out of Ottawa, who hopefully will also be coming to DevTeach, because it's not that far away from him. And we built him an awesome Win8 development environment with touchscreens, a connect, everything he needed to build awesome apps. And it is pretty awesome. We'd like to ask our guests, if you had five grand to drop on toys, technology, what would you get? Mark Mercury? What would I get? I would get a uh, 3D printer. All right. Yay for 3D printers. Any particular one? Do you have a favorite? Uh, I don't. I, I, you know, there's the guys in Brooklyn who have the, the more famous of the two, but I'd probably get more of an industrial size model. I can do some more stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can spend as much as you want on 3D printers these days, but five grand will get you a Whopper. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, Mark, Sims, what would you oh. buy for five Since grand? Since Mark scooped my idea, we'd pool our money and buy a bigger one. Ah. <laughs> you just need one in your neighborhood, right? <laughs> That's right. You can start charging for it. Mm, a $10,000 3D printer. Yummy. So you think there's going to be a surge in CAD CAM uh, training in schools now that we can print stuff on our, our, our at home? I think there's going to be some wacky Kinect software that you use the Kinect camera and people will do stuff with that. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. I um I and both my daughters did take 3D CAD CAM in high school. The younger one graduates this year, and uh, it's it does seem to be just something you should be learning these days. Probably. Awesome. Hey, let's dive back into this whole discussion because to me it doesn't sound like any of this conversation is actually Azure centric at all. You're talking about a, a set of architectures that apply to any large scale system, public cloud, private cloud, wouldn't really matter. Once you get beyond a certain scale, physics wins. And really all we're talking about is these <laughs> are the physics of, of, of an elastic distributed system. Uh, we can talk about exactly how you would do these things on Azure. We've got you know, pretty much half the fail-safe training gets into, hey, how do you do elasticity or what are our scale units in Azure? But at the end of the day, uh, whether we're doing this thing on Amazon, on Rackspace, on Azure, in a sufficiently large private data center, we're all dealing and grappling with the same set of challenges. Right. So, I mean, we still get back to, obviously, identifying the failure points, making sure that there's there's redundancy for everything. I'm just really curious about the, you know, how do you tell when something's failed in an Azure instance? What does that even look like? What kind of messages are you getting out? So we get to the third kind of pillar we, I, I mentioned earlier, and probably my favorite one, which is really around manageability, which breaks down into two areas. One is instrumentation and telemetry, which is basically what is the stream of ambient data coming out of the system that lets me know what's going on? The other part is the traditional monitoring and actual management, ALM, provisioning. And the biggest change that I've seen most folks struggle with, and usually the very first thing that I end up looking at when I get parachuted into a firestorm, is do we, ha do we actually understand what's going on in the system? Most mm -hmm. applications don't have enough telemetry or they don't have enough actual insight and enough data. I uh, finished looking at a uh, at a customer implementation last week. It was about 30,000 30, lines of code, so not a, not a enormous application, but still a little beefy, with 58 lines of logging. Wow. So I, well, we're back in psychic debugging land. <laughs> and yep. it's even a little bit worse than this, because we no longer have like a system running on one machine or two machines. Now we might have a system running on... 15, uh, you know, 15 different services across 100 machines, only five of which I actually control. So right. I don't even get rich instrumentation feeds from all of these. And we've always heard the whole, hey, I'll have lots of instrumentation and testing, and then I'll turn it all off and put it in production. Uh, that doesn't work so well anymore. So no. we have another challenge, which is I need an instrumentation framework that can actually survive logging in production. Yes. Yeah, because I've also had the experience of putting in instrumentation that creates so much overhead, I would not dare put this into production. It throttles the whole system. I would call that Heisenberging in box. <laughs> it's actually the observer effect, but we're now, you know, niddling oh, in details. You know. Oh, yeah. I didn't say we were using the colloquialism accurately. Okay. I, and I've, started, I've had that experience with System Center Operations Manager, where you turn everything on in OpsMan on to, say, a web server, you feel like you have a lot of data because you're buried in it. But I don't know that you know anything. You have a lot of data, you do not have a lot of insight. Right. You need to uncouple the Heisenberg compensators, I think. <laughs> we did that once, and then we had paperwork. <laughs> and a crater. We don't like to talk about that. So yeah, it's that, so there's actually a lot of really rich capabilities in Windows. You can do similar things in Linux as well to capture a lot of data. The challenge comes to if I have to put all of it on disk and then move all of it across the network, I start to get into, again, physics starts to predominate, right. especially if I'm moving unstructured data. And most everybody uses unstructured logging, string.format, trace.writeline, pick your poison, which is, of course, very verbose. And it's very heavy to move this sort of thing. 
So the only real kind of successful approach is, and we have a lot more detail in the recording and some samples online, is you have to think about there's different, just like we have different levels of service, there's different levels of value in the instrumentation. There's the stuff that I always want to know that's pre-filtered, it's pre-aggregated, and it's rolled up. Then there's the stuff that, eh, I might need it. I'm going to capture it anyway because storage is cheap, but if it takes six hours or a day to move it off on the central storage, that's okay. So we tend to get into these very kind of nuanced, rather more sophisticated approaches. The key thing is a rich instrumentation framework that is completely decoupled from the collection and the analysis and the consumption. So the developers are just going, I can log this and it's okay. And if it's really expensive, then I can turn off a flag and that won't, uh, and that'll mean I'm not dropping my, and I'm not, you know, just dropping the performance. Now, a lot of the standard logging frameworks that folks use in .NET, honestly, they just don't scale. They have hmm. serious issues at high concurrency and high load, either because they're synchronous or they're writing directly to some form of either local store, which is bad, or remote store, which is worse. Um, I've seen a uh, actually a really well-implemented high-scale application brought to its knees by logging through right. something as simple as there was this magical inflection point in the concurrency curve, and this was using Log4Net. Basically, at some point, too many separate threads were trying to write to the same log file, and by default, Log4Net is synchronous, and was basically taking out a live lock of the file handle, and all of a sudden, the web service, which normally takes 20 milliseconds, was taking 2,500 milliseconds just for logging. Right. Yeah, you fall off this cliff of concurrency. Yeah, you hit that wall at 100 miles an hour. Yeah, surprise, everything stops. That was your concur- That was your logging framework, so how do you tell what went wrong? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a logging framework for my logging framework. <laughs> Actually, in this case, we were using AppDynamics, so basically we were able to get live stack traces from the production site and actually narrow in exactly what the problem was. And Mark, you guys tend to use a, a logging interface these days, right? So you have the opportunity to change that later on. Oh, yeah, so that, that's one other thing. If I see one more piece of code that's using trace.writeLine or actually any logging framework directly, I may have to defenestrate someone. <laughs> <laughs> Love that word. <laughs> uh, the fact that we have a word in far from French, but in the English language for the act of throwing someone out of the window is pretty awesome. First time, start with the first story and then escalate as necessary. But one of the challenges I see is once you take a bet on a concrete implementation, on a concrete interface, like Log4Net's iLog or System Diagnostics Trace, you've basically boxed yourself in in terms of how you're able to express logging to the framework. More importantly, uh, so you guys have probably written, I know I have, code that does stuff like log exception to string. Right. It's been a while. But that's fundamentally evil and wrong and, and terrible because it makes every individual developer on your team responsible for extracting the correct information from exceptions yeah. rather than just passing the exception object and making it a matter of policy. Right. And especially now that we're in .NET 4 and .NET 4.5 and people are using tasks everywhere, which they should be, tasks return aggregate exceptions. So unless you're unrolling them properly, you're losing information. Yeah, so you always want to push the aggregate up. I'm just thinking about... Does this really mean we need to queue all this logging, like make it as asynchronous as possible? So two things. One is you want to write against that truly abstract logging implementation. So comment.logging or write your own um, that plugs in concrete implementations behind it. And those concrete implementations both support semi-structured logging in that I can just give the logging framework an exception message and have it do the right thing. So you make one person responsible for getting the logging configuration right and don't make your developers think because they have code to write. And the other part is it has to be completely asynchronous. It has to be lossy when necessary. It has to implement some degree of quality of service because there's some messages that are important, like, hey, the site's on fire. And there's some that are not so important. And has to have a a number of different targets. I may want to write the local files for things that are not terribly interesting. I might want to write directly to table storage for, hey, this thing's on fire. Yep. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. 
Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago, I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. I think the prioritization piece is really interesting. It gets back to useful information. Can't tell you how many log systems I looked at that only ever get studied after the building's fallen down. Yeah, they're forensic logs, not reactive logs. Right. Real simple example. I was working on another site. I was using this out-of-the-box Windows Azure Diagnostics, which works. You just had to tweak it for high scale. And the logging framework went nuts. Tripped the line of code and generated 300,000 log messages per second per machine. It's a bit of a problem. Yeah, and, that's a lot. And because the logs are staged in the table storage, first in, first out, everybody was backing up on that one table partition. And it took, I think, six or seven hours for the logs to start running again. And because it was first in, first out with no QoS and no throttling, basically the system wasn't reporting any telemetry for half a day. <laughs> so, yeah, you were blind. And and it there's almost no way to untangle it. You literally had to just let it wind itself down. We had to break up the tinfoil hats. Yeah, <laughs> and wait. Well, and and have you know, anything that takes more than a couple of hours like that. You're like, it's not actually working. It's failed. We should just restart everything. Will it? You know, will it actually recover over time? Yeah, we ended up in that case doing a rolling, uh, just a you know, upgrade domain by upgrade domain restart. Right. Which means you tossed a whole bunch of log data away. Oh, yeah. yeah, but it was all it was noise. There was good stuff buried in there. We just knew that we tripped some... We, the thing is, we only need one of those uh, 17 billion log messages. Yeah, we only need one of them. I only need to hear about it once. It would have been fine. So for some of our kind of the, the larger customers that have more resources and can amortize a bit more investment in, um, in logging frameworks, we started to do things like in-memory consolidation and in-memory alarm flood suppression. So using things like the reactive framework, uh, mm-hmm. kind of the push-based collections, we basically observe the stream of logs. And if you see the same message 50,000 times in a row, send two messages. One when you start to see the flood and another one at the end saying how many of them you saw. Right. And the funny part is we're actually borrowing a lot of these techniques from classical industrial control systems because they have the same problems in a more analog world. Yeah, the valve sensor is going to send every fraction of a second that it's failed over and over and over again. You've got to roll that up. Yep. And if, you know, say if one valve has failed, then probably a few other parts of the system are sending alarms as well. And if the only thing on the uh, the human machine interface on the alarm, kind of on the alarm console, is 6,000 alarms, what's the natural human reaction? Dismiss, 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 dismiss. Yep. I'm going for a copy. Yeah. How many times can I click OK anyway? Or can I write a macro to click OK for me? Right. Right. Install, buddy. So how much of your guidance is about just human behavior versus architecture? So the number one leading cause of all large-scale cloud system failures is organics. Those darn humans. PEBCAC. It's almost always a human. Um, From editing live configuration files. I've seen so many systems brought down by that. Uh, Who would do that? Um. I'm not, wouldn't want We're to not name, name names. names yeah. yeah. <laughs> it happens. But if you read between the lines on almost every root cause analysis published by any cloud vendor, humans. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the nice thing is that everything has an API. So you can automate many of the things and, you know, taking, you know, human error has a human in it. You know, you want to make sure you verify and, and test what you're automating. But you can start getting your, your, your ALM process in general down. And, and ALM is one of the places where people tend to fall down, right? It's not just about the code you write, it's how you write it, how you test it. How you deploy it, all, all that fun stuff. A real simple one. Uh, in the brave world of cloud and DevOps, configuration is code. Check it in and version it. Seems right. simple, seems really straightforward. But I've seen so many times where someone went in and hand-edited the configuration file and had no way to undo it. Right. So the thing I always say, is like one of the best things about Windows Azure is you can de- a developer can deploy from his desktop. And the worst thing about Windows Azure is a developer can deploy from his desktop. Yeah. You do need that workflow. You want another pair of eyes on everything, and you want a record of everything that's been changed. And you want tests being executed when stuff gets checked in to make sure that the code is valid and the system is working and it deploys correctly and all that fun stuff. 
Well, and we used to have this excuse that we were out of hardware. There was nothing left to test it on. It's the cloud. Just light up more. Yep, you can you know stand up a half dozen instances, do a quick burst test, and turn them off again. In a not one of my finer moments, uh, I was getting some pushback while at a customer site talking about the cost of doing such a test, and I pulled a quarter out of my pocket, laid it on the table, and said, "Well, we're covered for the first day." I'm kind of embarrassed that I did that, but yeah, I mean it's. It's one of the things that you're in a pay-as-you-go model, the the cost of not doing it right, right, right. Or, or even not enabling yourself to do it right later on. So we have customers that will give guidance, like, you know what, based on your timeline, maybe, and you don't know if you're going to scale, but at least build out this little piece here in some configuration so that you have the option to do this later on. So if you're going to, if you think you might hit a constraint, so a lot of times you hit a, an error because there's a constraint, you have, there's a, a cap on a database size, a number of requests you can make per minute. Put an abstraction layer in front of what you're going to call, and then today maybe you just make the call directly. But the plan is, is that when you think you're going to scale, you, you're going to modify that code such you can go ahead and partition that out appropriately if you're hitting multiple service bus um, queues and those sorts of things. But there's there's lots of things that you can do to save yourself a lot of time because if you don't do it up front, it is just like exponentially more time and pain and loss of nights and you know, I was joking with Mark before we started that, you know, you can tell people what it's like to be up at 3 a.m. in Ottawa doing code for somebody else's system. Right. It, it's not a lot of fun. Don't let that happen to you, right? Well, and, and it, it is, I think this it's not a lot of time. It is a required set of learnings to actually understand all the pieces of, of your ALM flow. That you actually know you have a flow and that you're, you're not, not doing any shortcuts. As soon as somebody opens Notepad, I get chills. In the end of the day, too, right? I mean, we are in a world that is 24 by 7 with people connected across a diversity of devices. They expect that your stuff works all the time. So unless you want to get uh, pager duty to call you at 2 a.m., you should build these things to be self-healing. So automation can also help look at some things, just like you go to a doctor and say, all right, what are your symptoms? Oh, it's probably this. And when in doubt, reboot, right? right. Um, and that may solve a lot of things, and automation can be your friend. But that's something that people need to look at and invest in. And it, it pays dividends, but there's there's a little bit of an upfront cost. Yeah, and it, and it just, to me, doesn't seem like that much of an upfront cost. People are in a hurry for funny reasons. It's a little bit of pain now or a lot of pain later. Yeah, same old story. Same old story. It just, now you can't buy your way out of it with bigger hardware or hide under the uh, the capitalization umbrella. Right. Yeah, we couldn't afford more. If only we'd done this Ruby on Rails, we never would have this problem. <laughs> Whoa! It's <laughs> so always one guy in the room. I know. One guy. Oh yeah, and sometimes he's right, but most of the time it's sort of like, well, if we used switch to a different technology and not invested in the fundamentals, we just have the same set of problems with different clothes. Right. Well, and I think you're you're exactly right. With the great thing about that answer is, if they say yes, they leave you alone for a few months because now you have to build it again. Hopefully, learning from mistakes you made the first time. Right. Not actually building anything. At the end of the day, very few of the challenges you run into at scale have anything to do with specific pieces of your implementation, the platform, the languages you choose. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. There's usually a workaround. But it's almost always we didn't get the, the, you know, the software engineering fundamentals right. right and we don't right. Need, it doesn't need to be an enormous investment in them. You just, if you're going to run a race, you want to run it on a, on a good track, not on quicksand. Right. And when stuff goes wrong, have a plan. You know, what's your, what's your run book, right? So right. very tempting to go and make these manual patches because people are yelling at you to go get this thing fixed. Mm -hmm. And that could set you back another three days if it's not done right. Oh, no, no, you're definitely digging a deeper hole at that point. Yeah, and people, in, in the heat of the moment, people don't remember what they've done, or they have a yeah. fuzzy recollection. And then you're chasing this thing down that is really a, a red herring, because the guy it was 2 o'clock in the morning, he had been out all night drinking, because he wasn't planning on coming in, and he made a mistake. Uh, all sorts of crazy stuff like that happens. So just have that run book and, and follow the guide. Yeah, and it, we're backing into the DevOps story in general here, which is that for the most of this audience, which is developers, this is a lot of operational problems. But I'm finding more than ever, if I don't have the developer involved in the logging solution or in some way of understanding what's going on in the app, externally viewing an app just doesn't seem to work anymore. It's not enough. There's You couldn't be more right. Apps, applications composed of services are so many moving parts and have gotten complicated enough that unless developers are are thinking about operations from the very beginning, the ops folks are hosed because they won't have the insight, not just the data, but the insight to be able to react accordingly. And speaking of someone who hates to carry a pager, nothing gets the fundamentals in place quite so quickly 
as giving the developer the pager and having it go off once. I have seen no other technique in the last 17 years create so much, I'm going to get the basics right, as having to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and the developer going, I wrote the logging and I don't understand what's going on here. Right. I'm going to fix this tomorrow morning. Hey, just a, one quick side before we head out here. What is the poison pill in content delivery networks? What's the thing that people overlook when, they're, when they go to use these things? Alphabetical or categorical? Uh, the number one mistake. Um, depends, actually. It really comes down to the scale and the size of the system that you're looking at and the type of the event. For example, if you're doing uh, a global real-time delivery, going with just one CDN is a failure point. Meaning yeah. if I'm going to broadcast the Olympics, I'm going to use three or four different CDN providers yeah, in case sure. one of them has a terribly bad day. Right. If I'm doing, if it's just my website and if the CDN goes offline, I can take the hit because this is a, a longer running thing. Uh, most of it's uh, either caching too much or too little. Mark, you've got more experience on that side than I do. Yeah, so I, I would I would echo what Mark's saying there, and again that goes back to the modeling. If you know what you need and when you need it, you're going to know and, and be able to justify up to the the business stakeholders that yeah we do need multiple CDNs. Like I you know like Richard says about agile or DevOps, you know th people think it comes in a spray bottle. Like you could just automatically scale your your cloud app by by putting stuff on a CDN. You know, I mean I, I've heard of that quite a bit. Well, there's people. There's people who don't necessarily understand how the CDNs work, right? So they work on the other side of what, what Mark was talking about for folks who, who actually need a CDN. A lot of folks don't necessarily need a CDN. And that right. ends up costing more money. Because yeah. so the CDN will take content from an origin, bring it to a local edge node, and then it can be consumed locally. So I had a customer who said, you know what? We're going to build an online bookstore. We're going to have a million books. We're going to put it in a CDN. I said, that is probably one of the worst things you could do. Right. I like, why, why is that? It's like, well, there are 20, maybe 100 books you sell a lot of. So in that case, it makes sense for you to bring that to a local edge node where you pay to go from origin to edge, and you pay again to go to, to the consumers. And that's fine because guess what? You're going to have a lot of people hitting that edge node, and, and getting a better experience is, is worth a hit. But if you have a million books, it's the long tail, right? If you only have 100 hits, everything else is hit periodically, which means they're going to time out, which means you're paying roughly twice as much every time. Sure. So really isolate in, you know, it's great for this, but not great for this and, and, and put it in accordingly. But the, the underlying thing there is, what is my workload? As soon as you bring in CDN, I'd better be talking about a publishing or another way of saying a primary read workload. Right. Of which I have multiple layers of cache, just like my, just like a, uh, just like a CPU. And one of the things I see folks doing wrong there is thinking of a CDN as a magical solution rather than one of the tiers of caching. Mm. The biggest mistake I've seen in this particular workload is taking the easy way out. I have a stateless web app, I have a database, and I'm done. Yeah. Basically, my content editing being the same as my content publishing. SQL, in its default, you know, or relational engine, its default configuration is designed for OLTP, a balance of mutable and immutable operations, which means that you're good at both, but you're not excellent at either. So if I have five people writing into a database and a million reading, that I'm either spending way more on that database than I ever would, or it's going to tip over and die. Yeah, I would say the majority of things that we end up cleaning up, you know, everyone or, or most people figure out how to scale compute. It's, it always comes back to the data store where they don't, they don't understand caching or they don't take advantage of these things the right way, mm. or they haven't partitioned their database. Um, and it's like, yeah, we can scale it infinitely and compute. And how many uh, databases do you have? Oh, we have one. Okay, well, you know that that's going to get throttled, and there's yeah. a finite cap. Oh, yeah, but, you know, we'll get there. And it's one of those things, it's scale, SQL Azure DB, for example, is fantastic, and it, it, it's a, well, it's a great tool, but it has constraints on it. It has a 150 gigabyte limit. And if you haven't put together a partitioning strategy until you get to 149 and a half gigabytes, well, guess what? And you're growing that, you know, at a fairly large clip every day, then that's probably something you should have thought about three months ago, mm -hmm. or, or the, the inception of the project. And we see lots of things where, and those are the most painful, right? Because at that point, if you're growing at that big of a clip, you're probably pretty popular. You have users who want a responsive website, and you're having to dork around with the stuff behind the scenes. And it's 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 very stressful, and you have to do it almost around the clock. Absolutely. Well, guys, it's been a great hour talking to you about this stuff, and thank you for doing all this work. I mean, not it's not just us, but all our fans really appreciate the hard work. Well, this is just enlightened self-interest. We like to talk about challenges up front rather than, oh, you did what? Um, okay. <laughs> we're, we're kind of the men in black that get sent out when these weird things happen. So uh, we, we like our families and like to stay home. So it's, it's in our 
interesting. So do hey, we can all. we give a plug for the website? Absolutely. So it's actually on Channel 9. We've got a, a web series. Um, there's nine episodes there right now, which is the complete two-day training, and we're, we're adding more. That's at channel9.msdn.com, WAC series, WAC failsafe, all one word. Excellent. Mark and Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure. All right. We'll talk to you next time, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.